Well, if you would take out the Word of God and turn to Acts chapter 2. We, we're continuing our sermon series through the book of Acts. Uh, last week we were in Acts chapter 1 and we talked about the promise that Jesus made that the Spirit would come and empower a group of people who would confess Jesus as Lord, who would witness in the face of death that Jesus had been raised from the dead and is God's King who will rule forever. And that witness would move from Jerusalem to the very ends of the earth, to Richmond, Kentucky, and on and on and on. And we gather here today uh, to, to be a marker that that is true that we gather in this room as those who confess Jesus as Lord, and that is the word that we gather around. As we move through the book of Acts, we'll, we'll notice we're, we're not going to cover every single section in detail. We'll have to summarize some sections, but we will emphasize uh, the word preached. In every chapter, in every section, in every move, there is a word that is preached uh, and so we will center on that witness, Jesus is Lord, and then notice around that witness how God uses it, how God uses it among the nations, as that is described in chapter after chapter, the word is preached, and then there are reverberations, signs and wonders as the word is preached. Today we will look at verses 22 through verses 31, uh, 41. Uh, of chapter 2, and I'm going to read verse 36 to begin our time. If you would, stand in reverence to the reading of God's perfect Word, being mindful that it is the Word of Christ before us, being mindful that we, we come to these moments, and, and God has brought us here by His sovereign purposes that we would hold His Word in our hands, that we would see it on screens, that, that we would stand before His Word and have His King speak directly to us, have His King command us, have His King invite us to be a part of what He is doing. We stand on the edge of, of something wonderful, of something great in these moments to be changed, to be transformed, to leave here never the same. And we come before this word in that way. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Oh God, I pray those words would pierce our hearts. They would cut us deep. That the one who came to the world he created the world did not know Him. The one who came to the people whom He loved, they did not love Him. They killed Him. They crucified Him. And in that very act, You were redeeming our souls. God, would we, would we be amazed at Your glory in the cross where our sin and Your love meet face to face. And all of our hopes and our dreams and what we need and what we long for are met in the moment where your son is crucified for our sins. God, I pray that we would delight in that. I pray that we would be overjoyed in that. I pray that it would transform our lives. I pray that we would repent. <clears throat> 
of not giving our lives over to it, of not trusting and relying and following and bowing before your King. It's in the name of Christ that we pray. Amen. I was exhausted. I was in that fog that you find yourself in when you haven't slept for a few days. I'd spent nearly two days on an airplane, and I found myself looking around an airport where everyone there looked vastly different from me. There were no Tennesseans to be found in this airport in Addis Ababa in Ethiopia. And I couldn't understand anything anyone was saying. It literally sounded like babble to me. And Danae and I looked around and we noticed there were many Ethiopians just standing back laughing at us because we stood uh, almost in a comedic way at the front of this airport just staring out at this city that we had never been to, that we didn't know where we were going. And we, we were looking at the signs and we were, we were trying to find something familiar, the car or something, and there was nothing familiar to be found. And we just stood there with blank stares on our face, not knowing what we were going to do. The signs looked like gibberish. Everything was, was out of order, and we were confused, and we, we, were, we were in this fog of exhaustion. And then we noticed one sign that can be made out in any country, in any place, in any village, in anywhere, Coke. It was over a cafe in the middle of this airport, and we felt a sense of relief. There's something that we can read. There's something that we can say. How about let's go over and order a Coke, one thing that we can now do. And we go over and we sit down and we said, we'll have two Cokes. And they bring out the Cokes in the, in the bottles that you, you had when you were a kid, and it just tastes better coming from a bottle. And then... The woman held out her hand, and I realized I had no currency to pay for the one thing that was familiar to me in this foreign country. And the despair just kept mounting. We were in Ethiopia, and the adoption agency never sent us a ride to the airport. They never sent us a guide. They never sent us a translator. They never sent us anything. We just arrived in this country and I guess they forgot all about these two people that had paid them thousands of dollars to go to this country. They just forgot about us. Well, I'm, you can see I'm, I'm still bitter about that moment. Don't ask me what agency we used. Please don't. And I eventually found my way to a phone book, and I thought, yes, a phone book, that's what that is, and, and I will find where we're going to go. I'm going to take care of myself, take care of my wife, and we're going to go rescue these two boys in this city that we've never been to, and I felt like Jack Bauer. We're just about to get it done. I don't need anyone, and I opened up the phone book, and I had no clue what was, which even direction to read the words. <laughs> The numbers and the letters, they, they all looked the very same to me. I couldn't tell what was what. And so then I walked over to a taxi driver. And I said, Ethiopian guest house. And he just stared at me. Like, yeah. And I said, Ethiopian guest house. And then he finally somehow communicated with us, which one? 
there's like a hundred of Ethiopian guest houses here. And I finally communicated back, let's go to all of them. We will find the people we need to find. You just take us. And we headed off into this city that we had never been, for, been to before. The smells, the sounds, it felt like we were on another planet. Language and culture can be frustrating at times. It can be scary at times to find yourself in another country where you don't know the language, where you don't know anything. To, to try to talk to someone who is from another culture and you don't understand what they're saying, that can be frustrating. Even at times it can be irritating. Missionaries talk about culture shock where they're, they're in another culture and they, it finally dawns on them the reality that the food and the people and the language and nothing here is familiar Nothing, there's nothing here I can grab a hold of that, that, is, that is familiar to me. And, and they are almost paralyzed. And they become angry and frustrated and even depressed at times. Language and culture can be frustrating. It can be scary. It can also be very humorous. When we go to the restaurant and where we think when someone doesn't understand us, if we just talk louder, they will understand us. Hello, how are you doing? As if that's going to translate the louder it gets into another language. Or if you're like me, you're, you're in South America and you try to learn phrases to, to, to relate and you just this hit from Tennessee. Que pasa? Donde esta baño? And you just sound like an idiot in this country. It can be frustrating. It can be irritating. It, it, it can be humorous at times. But what we find in all of these situations is we are bumping up against the curse. We are bumping up against the curse of Babel. If you remember Genesis chapter 11 that the men of the world said, we're going to build a tower to God, to the heavens, and we're going to rule ourselves. And all the men of the world, they, they get together, the tribes, the families, the kingdoms, and, and they begin building this kingdom, which is a name for themselves. And what God does is He curses them. And He scatters them throughout the world with different languages, with different cultures. And what happens from those languages are different cultures develop and different kingdoms develop all around the world that are distinct from one another. And what happens with those kingdoms is conflict. They began to mark out their own territory, build an their own name for themselves with their different languages, with their different cultures. And the world is marked not just by being at war with God, but at war with one another. And, and, and we feel that when we see other culture. We feel that when we see other languages. We feel that when there is war and there's division in the world. We are rubbing up against the curse of Babel. But what we see in Acts chapter 2 is Jesus coming through His church to reverse the curse of Babel. 
He comes in Acts chapter 2 with this witness that he talked about last week. And he comes to all peoples to bring them together in one person. He comes to all kingdoms to bring them together in one king. He comes to all languages to bring them together in one word. And it is the one word that all people need, Jesus as is king. When we get to Acts chapter 2, the apostles have arrived in Jerusalem. They have arrived at what's called Pentecost. Jesus had told them, go to the city and wait. And it just so happens they are in the city during the festival of Pentecost, which was 50 days after the Passover. The, the people celebrated the giving of the law. And then Pentecost was this time of harvest where the people got together and they celebrated God's provision of giving the law, of giving harvest. And it was a massive celebration. And, and all who practiced the Jewish traditions would trek to Jerusalem. They would go there for parties. They would go there for celebrations. They would take time off of work. They would visit with friends. They would have cookouts. They, they, you, you think Derby Day. Think Super Bowl parties. Think, think the 4th of July with religious overtones here in Jerusalem. And what it meant for the purposes of God were the nations were there. Many in the culture in general just saw this as another time to party. Just another time to have fun. All the Jews are coming to town. All those that practice Judaism are coming to town. And we're going to have a big party. And the disciples, they're there. And we read at the first of Acts chapter 2 that they're in an upper room. They're having a fellowship there. And all of the sudden, out of nowhere... The, the, this wind bust in the upper room. It, it would have sounded like a freight train in a, in a trailer park. It just, it just comes in. Boom! You've seen those people on TV. They're talking about what it sounded like. They're in the upper room and boom! And then all of a sudden they look around and there are flames of fire on one another's heads. And, and, and the disciples of Jesus begin to talk about Jesus Remember the witness of chapter 1? What is the power of the Spirit do in our life? It causes us to confess Jesus as Lord, to declare that Jesus is raised from the dead, and they have these tongues of fire on their head, and they begin to confess Jesus as Lord, and this amazing thing happens. People from all kinds of languages, all kinds of culture, that they hear these people talking in their own tongue, but they began to understand what they are saying. Their message, Jesus is Lord. And there are people standing around in the city. This is weird. This is crazy. Have y'all heard about what's going on in that upper room? Did you hear the sounds? Did you hear about those pyrotechnics on, on top of their heads? And, and, and are they drunk? I mean, what are they smoking in the upper room? Literally, people are asking, are they intoxicated? What kind of party are they having? And Peter stands up and says, it ain't a party. It's Jesus. Let me tell you what's going on in that upper room. A prophet named Joel told us this was going to happen. 
Peter stands up and says, God predicted and prophesied that his sons and daughters from all over the world would come to one place and they would begin to say, they began to witness his kingdom by his spirit. What you are seeing in that upper room isn't a drunken party. It is Jesus, and Jesus is moving through His church in the world. And these tongues of fire, they they represent God coming and, and with fire purging a new people. These tongues of fire, they represent God coming and purging a new people from all kinds of languages. Not one ethnicity, but all ethnic groups will be purged with this fire. And with their tongues, they will begin to say, Jesus is Lord all over the world. That's what you're seeing. And in Acts chapter 2, we find Peter. Remember the last episode of Peter? They come to get Jesus. He takes out a sword. He chops an ear off. That wasn't the right thing to do. Jesus is being hung on a cross. A little servant girl says, Hey, don't, don't you know him? I don't know what you're talking about. Soldier comes up to Peter. Weren't you with Jesus? I, who are you talking about? Jesus? Jesus who? I don't know what you're talking about. And he denies Jesus three times. But now there's something different. The Spirit of God is moving through the tongue of Peter. And this man who just a few days ago denied Jesus was scared to death in the face of the cross. He is standing up before a whole city. He says, hey, bring the whole city in here. I got something to tell y'all. You want to know what's going on? Jesus is back, and I ain't scared of nothing because Jesus is back. And I'm going to stand up, and I'm going to preach Jesus, even if it means you kill me. I'm going to preach Jesus. And we see the power of the Spirit in the life of Peter, who who is willing to say, Jesus is Lord no matter what it costs him. And he tells all the Jews in the city, it's worse than a party. Jesus is back and you killed him. That's bad news for you. Notice verse 22. He says, men of Israel, hear these words. We see Peter, he he is about to declare, even though you killed him, Jesus was king on the cross. And he begins with the men of Israel, the Jews in Jerusalem. He says, says, come come up here, I'm going to put you on blast before these people. You who killed Jesus. Yes, Jesus of Nazareth. Just a man. We read that. That's just a name. He's speaking of the irony of what they think about Jesus. He was just a man. Yeah, you know that Jesus from Nazareth. Yeah, you thought he was just this backwoods, hick, this Galilean. But guess what? He was a man attested to you by God. Even though you saw a man, God was saying to you that he was something else. He witnessed. He told you the truth. He anointed him to speak to the effects of sin and death in the world so that he would speak his word and the effects of sin and death would reverse before his very eyes. God was telling you, that's my king. That's my son in whom I'm well pleased. He will reverse the curse of sin in the world. God was telling you who this Jesus of Nazareth was, but you turned around and said, no, that's just a bunch of hocus pocus. I mean, he's Joseph and Mary's boy. 
He's not God's king. He says, no, but God said with many works and wonders that you, that, that God did through him in your midst, as you know, this Jesus delivered up to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified by the hands of lawless men. This Jesus, remember him? The one you, you handed over to the authorities as a blasphemer? You had him killed as a common pickpocket like on the outskirts of the, skirts of the city with all the other criminals. Yes, that Jesus that you delivered over, well, by the way, that was according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You thought you were doing something, but this is a plan, literally a definite plan, a predetermined plan, the word is, a plan that was already cut out by God according to his foreknowledge. God had intimate knowledge of what was about to happen because he planned it. He said, you crucified and you killed him. You, you led that Jesus of Nazareth to a cross where he suffocated, where he drowned in his own blood because of you. Because you thought he was just a man. Because you were threatened by him. You had him killed, but all along God was doing this. You had him killed by the hands of lawless men. Wicked men who were using their hands to do something. But I want to tell you something. Verse 24, God raised him up. Loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. So as lawless men took their hands and nailed him to a cross, the hands of God were doing something else. God was untying the effects of sin and death in the world. And he literally took the pangs of death on the body of Jesus and he untangled them so that Jesus would be raised from the dead. While men were using their hands for sin and wickedness, God was using them for His purposes to redeem His people. And He says, because it wasn't possible, it wasn't possible for Him to be held by death. He wasn't a sinner who didn't deserve to die. The consequences of sin, which were death, were not just for Him. That's why He's alive and well. And we see here in the word of Peter that the crucifixion was not a shock to God. It wasn't something that was out of God's hands. It wasn't something that was out of God's control. He knew what these men were going to do before they ever did it because He planned it. He planned it to redeem you from your sins. And so Peter stands up before these men and he says, Hey, I'm here to tell you your plan backfired. You had a plan to kill Him because you were threatened by Him. You had a plan to kill Him and, and, and quiet His mouth. Well, it backfired because God was using your plan for His plan to redeem His people. You saw a weak and helpless man on a cross gasping for air, suffocating, drowning in his own blood like an abused dog. That's what you saw, this weak man who you humiliated, king of the Jews. Yes, really? I mean... He can't save himself. How's he going to save all these people? And you stood before him and you humiliated him. Guess what? That plan backfired because he's back from the dead. And that's bad news for you. Because he's king of glory. And, and by your own hands, 
God was achieving His purposes. And we see here at the height of our sin, at the height of sin and wickedness, we see the height of God's sovereignty in the world. The, the, the height of sin to kill the Son of God. The height of wickedness. We see the height of God's sovereignty. He uses even that to redeem His people. That was a part of His plan to save you. That His Son would die for you. What amazing love, what amazing grace, what amazing power. And here's the point. If God was still in control on Jesus' worst day, using it for His glory, He's still in control on your worst day. And if God can use the cross of Christ to redeem all of His people, the most wicked act in the world, He can use anything that you do or don't do or have done to redeem, to declare His glory in the world. You see, some of you come in here and there are times in your life that you don't want anyone to bring up. You are hiding from things you did in your past. You come in here and you think about seasons in your life where you spent out of guilt avoiding the people of God. I don't want to be around those people. It just makes me feel guilty. You spent those days with people that if they saw you here today, they would say, what in the world are you doing at church? You're a church guy? Really? And you, you are embarrassed and you are full of guilt because you think those days were wasted. You think those days cannot be redeemed. If God can use the cross of His Son, there is nothing He is scared of in your life to use for His glory. There is nothing, there is not one day, there is not one act that He will not redeem. He doesn't gloss over it. He doesn't act like it's not there. He meets it head on with the blood of His Son and He holds it up to declare His grace and His mercy and His love in the world. If God can use and if God had planned to use the cross of Christ to declare His glory, He can use even your worst moments to declare His glory. But notice Peter continues, For David says, now he begins to invoke David, King David. David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me. For He is my right hand that I will not be shaken. The Lord, God, the, the covenant-keeping God of Israel is always there for me. He's at the right hand. He is in this place of protection. And He says, Therefore my heart was glad. My tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. Because God is sovereign. Because God is always there. I will always be found rejoicing and hoping in Him. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You will not send literally your king, your set-apart king, to death, to corruption. You have made known to me the path of life. You will make me full of gladness in your presence. What David is saying here is you only want my good. You have always protected me. And ultimately, my end is in your presence, full of gladness and full of joy. In Psalm 16 that Peter quotes here, David is referring to the sovereignty of God, this one who promised him an everlasting kingdom. 
And so David always lived, even on the battlefield, even in times of despair, saying, God's in control. And even if I die, God's plans and purposes will still be true, will still be a reality. But notice Peter continues, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, who had this unshakable confidence that he would be raised from the dead if needed, that he, both dead and buried, and was buried, and his tomb is with us today. He says, let's think about David, who had this unshakable confidence in a resurrection. Hey, we can travel down to the royal cemetery and we can look around and we can find King David's tombstone. His body is still there. He wasn't raised from the dead. He had this unshakable hope in resurrection, but it wasn't in his resurrection. He continues, being therefore a prophet. What David was, was a prophet pointing us to someone else. And knowing that God had sworn an oath, He had promised that that He would set one of His descendants on His throne. And that was an unshakable promise that He lived hoping in even till His death. Verse 31, He foresaw and spoke of the resurrection of Christ. That He was not abandoned to Hades, nor did His flesh see corruption. He says, your patriarch David. Be like saying George Washington... Abraham Lincoln, Ronald Reagan, General Robert Neyland. If you're from Tennessee, you may get that. Your hero, he's dead. Your hero is dead. The one that you look back on history and say it's all about him. He secured the land. We were prosperous under him. He is the man. Well, guess what? He's dead. His bones are still in the ground. So what was he talking about when he talked about a resurrection? Or who was he talking about when he talked about a resurrection? I'm here to tell you, Jesus of Nazareth who you killed. That was who David looked forward to. That's who David had to hope in for eternal life. That's who David had to look forward to, to believe that his bones would be raised from the dead. Jesus of Nazareth is the first and only one that God has raised from the dead and seated at the right hand as a ruling and reigning king. David looked forward to, yes, this Jesus of Nazareth that you crucified and killed. You see, David would stand around as people moved in on him with swords and spears at times. He would find himself alone with no friends, no family around. And he would sing Psalm 16. I trust you, Lord. You you can even, like Abraham taught us, when he went to kill Isaac, if you have to raise him from the dead, you will. If you have to raise me from the dead, you will. But Peter says, no, David's still dead. He was pointing us to another one. And this is the only way we can hope in resurrection. You can't raise yourself from the dead. David couldn't raise himself from the dead. Your greatest hero is still dead. And that is a reality that we must face. And yet because Jesus, because Peter preaches here, Christ has been raised from the dead, seated at the right hand of God. Yes, this Jesus of Nazareth, we can stand around and even sing in the face of death. 
because our resurrection isn't in our own power. It's one who is alive and well and right now seated at the right hand of God. But he continues, verse 32, this Jesus God raised up. Again, what, what Peter is doing in this sermon over and over is saying, yes, that man, yes, that person you killed, a mere man. Here's the irony. He wasn't a mere man. God raised him up and we are witnesses. We're standing here today to tell you what we've seen and what we've heard. And we're standing here today to tell you why it happened. We have the same witness that God had. He is God's son. He is God's king. And here we're seeing even further evidence of it. Verse 33. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. What Peter is saying is what Jesus promised in chapter 1 verse 8. This promise is now resting on Him and it's being poured out like water on others. They are being flooded with this Spirit that is causing them to stand up in this opposition and say, yes, this man you killed he is now seated. The text says exalted at the right hand. He is the highest authority in the cosmos. This hick from Galilee that you killed. And you didn't think anything about it. The Roman soldier went home that night, kissed his kids, put them to bed, laid down, got up the next day and went and killed somebody else. Let's go back to the Jesus you killed. He's at the right hand of God right now. He's ruling and reigning. And you killed him. How do we know? He has poured his spirit out on us and we are declaring that it's true with this confidence. You see his power before you. Having received the spirit, we're standing before you as a sign Jesus is alive. Jesus told us we would do this. And now you're seeing another act of Jesus as we proclaim this word. Notice verse 34. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said, My Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a foot, your footstool. Here, David couldn't trust in himself. He had to look to another. He had to look to his Lord. And what Peter is saying is his Lord isn't a generic abstract force or idea out there. It was Jesus of Nazareth in flesh and blood. And he says, let all the house of Israel, all of the Jews gathered there know that the one that you hung, the one that you killed, know for certain that God has made him both Lord. He has made him the ruler, the reigner, the master in Christ and King, this Jesus whom you crucified, who you cursed you cursed his reputation. God has raised him from the dead. And what you are seeing right now as we preach the gospel to you is this Jesus seated at the right hand of God is making all, the, all his enemies his footstool. Because this message will go to the ends of the earth and those who do not believe in him will be wiped out by him. We're here to tell you that that's true. The man who you killed is God's king and he's back from the dead and he's speaking through us. Peter points to David. He says, let's think about David. He's dead and he's gone. And let's think about David's reputation. He never escaped the reputation of an adulterer. The first half of David's life, he's a man after God's own heart. After adultery, that's never said of him again. He dies with this scandalous reputation. 
Go and read of the death of King David. He is in a tent and he is shaking with a fever and he cannot comfort himself. And they have to gather others around him to warm his body because King David could not defeat death. King David could not stop the effects of death from putting him in the ground. There's only one who has done that, and it is Jesus, and he is raised from the dead, and he is at the right hand of God. A humiliating death came to your greatest hero. And as we said in this room, we know death can be humiliating, right? We know getting old is not fun. It's not exciting. It's, it's, it's our bodies begin to shut down and they begin to come, become weak. Last night I picked Jonah up and tried to throw him across the room and I, I, I threw my back out, which that happens just by sleeping now. I didn't know that you could sleep and hurt your back. But, but our bodies just deteriorate. And, and some of us, are going to die in hospital rooms with catheters and cords and tubes hanging from our body as we gasp for breath in this humiliating, disgusting way. Same thing happened to King David. His bones were drug out of that tent and thrown in the ground. But not Jesus. He's back from the dead. And our only hope here today is Jesus. We gather around caskets and corpse and we sing, you know, go rest high on the mountain. We, we sing, I'll fly away. We sing because he lives. How do you do that? How do you celebrate? How do you sing such songs in the face of death only because Jesus is back from the dead? That's your only hope is that Jesus has been raised from the dead and Peter stands up in the face, get this, in the face of men who killed him. There were people standing before Peter who screamed at the top of their lungs, crucify him, kill him. And now he stands before this bloodthirsty mob and says, you killed him? He's back from the dead. And notice what he says, the response should be verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. It's almost as if their person, the word describes, is opened up and laid bare before God. And, and, and earlier, we, we hear this stiff-necked, rebellious people that are now cut to the heart and convicted of what the word that he is preaching. And they said to Peter and the apostles, Brothers, if this is true, what shall we do? And Peter says, Repent! and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sin, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. He says, this is the same message you heard from John the Baptist. It is the same message that you heard from Jesus when he said the kingdom is at hand. Turn from your sin, turn from your kingdoms, bow to his name, bow in reverence to him, the name of Jesus Christ, Nazareth, Galilean, rebel rouser that you killed. No, you bow before the name Jesus, Savior, King, and Lord. You bow before Him. You turn from your kingdoms and you will receive the forgiveness of sin. You will receive this gift of the Holy Spirit that rested on Him, that is now resting on His people. You will be released of the debt of all of your sins if you bow before Him in repentance. 
Verse 39, for the promise is for you and your children. It's for those here. It's for those who are far away. It is for everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Those who confess his name will be saved. They will be brought near to God. Though they have run from him, they will be brought back to him in repentance. Verse 40, and with many words he bore witness. He told the truth and continued to exhort them saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. The the world that killed Jesus is headed in one direction. It is crooked. It is deceptive. It is delusional. Turn from that and turn and bow to Jesus and you will be forgiven of your sins and you will be granted the Holy Spirit that rested on Jesus, that's resting on us. Verse 41. So those who received this word were baptized and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. Now, that's amazing, right? In Jerusalem, hundreds of thousands of people Peter stands up, this redneck fisherman who, when he's walk, if you've, if you've read of Peter, he's walking with Jesus and quite often he's looking at Jesus going, what are you thinking? Really? We're going to do it that way? You're going to go to Jerusalem and be killed? I'm not going to let that happen. I'll never deny you. And you have this bombastic fisherman whose mouth is often filled with profanity And now it's all harnessed by the Spirit of God. This roughneck fisherman standing up preaching the gospel and 3,000 religious well-to-do Jews in Jerusalem begin to walk forward and respond to the invitation. And you're like, wow, that's amazing. That causes an uproar, as we'll see the next few weeks, in Jerusalem. People don't like that. But what we see here is the Spirit is forming this witness in Jerusalem that will continue to echo to the ends of the earth, even to Richmond today. That's what we do here today. This sermon that Peter preached is echoing in this room right now. Jesus is King. Clay used to ask me about seven years ago, we first started doing worship and planning the service, he would say, what's the sermon about this week? Because he wanted to do a good job and plan out. And I would always just text back or say, Jesus. Like, figure it out. It's about Jesus. It was humorous. But the point is this. Every sermon for the church ever since is the same sermon at Pentecost. Jesus is king. Jesus is back from the dead. Jesus is seated at the right hand of God. And that's what the witness of the church always is. That's the witness we need week after week. And we need to be called to respond to that witness. The church is standing up every week and making a political statement. And it has nothing to do with what candidate you should vote for. It is a political statement that Jesus is king now. He's always been king. And He will be king forever. And that's the kingdom that we're a part of. Jesus' kingdom. And we stand up and we say, He is back from the dead, ruling and reigning. He has forgiven me of my sins. He's given me His presence. He's given me the witness of the church. And we stand before Him as Lord and King week after week after week after week after week because it's what we need. We don't get bored with it. We say, that's amazing. 
that he would let me be a part of this. And we take that word to the ends of the earth. Huts, villages, basements. And we don't care who opposes us because Jesus is king. He is the cosmic galactic king that God demands every human soul follow. And so what does that mean for you today? It means you look in the mirror and say, I'm not king. Every time you hear the witness, Jesus is king, you better be convicted that you're not king. You better be cut to the heart that you're not king. And it's good when things don't go your way, when things aren't just like you like them, to just go look in the rearview mirror when someone cuts you off in traffic and go, I'm not king. Jesus is king. And he's king of traffic. He's king of the world. He's king of the cosmos. I can't believe you said that to me. I'm not king. Jesus is king. And on and on and on. Jesus is a better king than you could ever be. Jesus is the only king that could die for your sins, and he has. Jesus is the only king who could raise you from the dead, and he will because he's raised from the dead. Jesus is seated at the right hand of God, ruling and reigning right now, and you are not. And the response is to repent from thinking you are. Repent from thinking you could. Repent from thinking you have. Repent of self-righteousness. Some of you are here today and you think by being here today, you're one step closer to saving yourself from your sins. By reading your Bible, you're one step closer to getting rid of that guilt in your life. By going to a BFG, you're, you're one step closer to assuring yourself that you're really, really, genuinely a Christian. And it never happens. You know why? You're not king. Jesus is. And you're not looking to the king on the cross who died for your sins. You're looking to yourself as king to pay for your sins. Some of you are here today and you are full of fear. And you are fearing the bills that are going to come in on Tuesday. You're fearing your job situation. You are fearful of what others may think or say about you. And you are racked with fear. You know why? You're not king. And you're trying to reach into those situations and be king by worry. You're trying to reach into those situations and be king with the angst and anxiety in your soul. And what God is saying to you is the same thing Peter said to the Jews at Pentecost. You're not king. Repent of trying to be king. Jesus has defeated your greatest enemy, death. What else do you have to fear? He's, a, he's back from the dead. He got out of a first century coffin. He says, you will be raised from the dead. Repent of trying to be king over your greatest fears and know that he has defeated your greatest fear, death. Repent of your control. You see, some of you just want more control. You want what you want and you want it right now. Guess what? For me... I know personally that has made me the most miserable. Getting control over what I want and getting it, manipulating things, deceiving things, or, or not even in, in sinful ways, just God allowing me to get what I want that I think I want, and it's made me the most miserable. 
because of the sin of control that goes on in my life. And what Peter says here is repent of trying to be king and stop caring about what you want and bow before what Jesus wants. Repent, turn to Him, submit to Him and His will and His word and just stop and look in the mirror and say, I'm a really bad king. I'm a really bad Lord and Savior. But Jesus isn't. He's king of the cross. He's king of the grave. He's king seated at the right hand of God over everything right now. And there's a day coming that Paul talks about where every knee will bow. And here's what he says. Every tongue, even tongues you wouldn't understand right now, you would turn and go, that's Babel. Every tongue will confess Jesus is Lord. Will you do it now or then?